feel cold in here? Is it comfortable? Does it feel cold in here? Is it comfortable? Not bad. Really hot. Really hot. Sorry. Turn on the air conditioning. The air just turned on. It's freezing. Yeah. If it listens to you, then it's gonna, it's gonna be too hot. You can't win. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Good. Nice to see y'all. Stand up and we'll pray and praise God. Thank you, Father, for this morning, for this time we have together, for uh, everything that's going on in the season of church. Busy season, a lot of fun stuff. Good opportunities to be together happens, God. So I just uh, praise you for that. pray for the tea today, and um, got a couple big events coming up over the next few weeks, I pray for your blessing on them as well. Uh, this morning as we praise you, God, may our hearts and minds be focused on you. We pray for posture, God, we pray for Leonard as he preaches, give him clarity of thought, give him ears to hear, um, pray for the youth as well, everything going on in that hall, and all the volunteers, all the kids, the seeds are being planted and tended. time up to you, God, and we love you. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, With my soul, 
Sing that first verse one more time together. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, dismissed. I heard those amens and hallelujahs. I hope as well with everybody's soul today. I, I, I think that um, there's something about spring and things becoming just, uh, just blooming and verdant and just life-filled that is so refreshing. 
And as we see it in contrast to seven months of winter, uh, boy, isn't it nice just to be able to go out, enjoy the sun, enjoy the plants, and uh, be with one another. And I'm glad that you've chosen to be here uh, the first day of the week with us because it is so tempting now. But until you put the Creator first, you really can't appreciate the creation as God intended it. And I, don't, I can't underscore that enough. And as we gather, uh, we want to calibrate our hearts and our minds to the realities of God at work, not only in creation, but in our hearts and in the work that the Lord is doing in each of our lives and in our church and through our church. Uh, so as we gather, just a couple of things I want to make you aware because we're doing things right now as we're coming back online as a church and getting life and vitality back. Uh, so if you have your message notes, you might just uh, uh, hook your peepers on these points, one through seven. And I'm just going to talk about two of them. And the first one is the ladies' tea, the women's tea, which is today at 11. Not right after church, but at 11 in the fellowship hall. We've been praying about this. Uh, uh, the team has been working on this for quite a while. And we're very excited about what the Lord is going to be doing in that gathering today. And hopefully as uh, he moves you along that path, uh, that path will open up into other things. So have that expectation as uh, you guys enjoy a, a day of blessing. Uh, there's also a gathering that we're going to be having next Sunday night at, um, uh, I want to make sure we got the time right on there, I believe it is 6 p.m., right, at 6 p.m., um, there's a lot of stuff that happens that we're not even aware of in our community and in the surrounding area. And one of the things that uh, I've recently become aware of is the level of human trafficking that, that occurs uh, under, under you know, our, our very eyes that we don't, we don't even comprehend. And uh, Kendall has sort of been a force in helping us to become aware of that because I think this is one of the many areas where God has come to set the captives free. And this awareness night, which I think will just be a great uh, opportunity, not only to be attuned to things that we need to be praying about and asking God, how are you calling us to be a voice in those worlds, uh, but also celebration of the things of the Lord. So if you're free Sunday night next week, feel free to join us. Um, so with that said, um, if you guys... Uh, uh, have your Bibles. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. Uh, but before we get there, we're going we're gonna to open up with prayer. And what I'd like to do, I know we've had pastoral prayer uh, where we've solicited that, but we're kind of morphing that into uh, meet myself and an elder and, and anybody else that's, you know, uh, on, our, on our prayer team uh, in the studio right afterwards. And we're happy to pray with you to take those things that are on your heart and mind and, uh, and, and, and bring them to the broader awareness of our church uh, so that we can be praying for those needs. And I've really appreciated the fact that you guys, have, uh, you guys have, have volunteered so much about things that you're burdened by uh, because we don't want you to just carry that alone in, in, in just this, the privacy of your own life. Now, some things, obviously, you're like, I don't feel comfortable, but there are other things that I think you should be praying for. And we should be not only uh, praying, but watching for God to respond. Uh, so if you have prayer concerns, just meet me and, um, and, and an elder and uh, anyone that uh, is on that, on that team 
in the studio, and we're happy to help you guys out. So with that said, I, I want to just uh, take this moment and sanctify it and, and offer it to the Lord. Would you bow with me? Our Lord Jesus, as we gather in this room, we know that it is specifically dedicated for one single purpose, and that is for us to lift our praises before your throne, that you would inhabit those praises, that you would be glorified in them, and that in the process of us connecting with you in that way, we pray that your word, as you have revealed it to us in scripture, begins to go into the deepest regions of our being and redefine us along the lines of, of the life of Jesus. We know, Father, that as sin has invaded the world, it has put us in a state of mind that is out of sync with you. And we ask, Lord, that as we attune to your word, as your spirit works in our hearts, Holy Spirit, as your, <clears throat> as your son, Lord Jesus, <clears throat> becomes evident <coughs> excuse me, evident in, in, in this worship gathering. I pray, Jesus, that you would be personal in every life here, that that sense of your abiding and accompanying would just be manifest and made more clear. We thank you, Father, for the gift of all of these things, and especially uh, as you call us together, one another, uh, the privilege of being here with each other. So we ask, Lord, that you speak to us uh, through your word, and as your messenger, I pray that what I say would be reflective of your purposes. And we thank you, Lord, as we commit this time to you. And Lord, as we align our hearts and our minds, and as we just tune our spirits to you, um, help us to pray the Lord's Prayer in a way that um, is, is, is in alignment with how we've uh, relearned it again. So would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, uh, for the next uh, several minutes, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. We're going to try to cover the whole chapter today, uh, one way or the other. And in the process, I hope that as we follow Jesus into this space, uh, we capture some things that I think will be helpful for us along the way in the work that we're called to do. Um, and as we think about that, we know that God calls us to be change agents in the areas that he's given us responsibility over. And sometimes uh, you think, well, I don't have a lot of words, or I don't have a lot of ability, or I don't have a lot of gifts, or I can't. And we tend to minimize what God can do through our lives whenever we just pay attention to what we're called to do, what he's already given us in terms of equipping and experience and just reading the word and coming to church in a habitual way, there's a lot already in there to draw from. And sometimes we're a little bit timid going into the spaces that God calls us to go into. You know, I think about one of the most influential people in the room in my, in my mind, and this is a person that doesn't even, you don't even hear him talk a whole lot. And he's not even going to like me pointing him out. And I hope we're friends after we're done. 
But um, if you were in the Joy Club the other day, uh, you got to hear uh, what Shane Franks had shared regarding all the work that is happening with the Parks Department. And he's very quick to give credit to all the people that are involved in the partners and things like that. And the one thing that I can appreciate about his role in that, in that stewardship is that uh, no matter where you go in Salem, there, there appears to be a park here, there, and everywhere, but you also discover that these are places that are life-giving. They're enriching. They bring a sense of health and vitality, a sense of shalom. And uh, Shane, we greatly appreciate the fact that you take that stewardship very seriously. And yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as, uh, as, you know, as you just, you know, look at through the lens of what do Salem parks look like, uh, there's a lot of activities happening. And you said, well, how many people did you say will descend on the parks for all kinds of occasions in the course of a year? Ninety-five thousand visitors a year just at Waterworth. That's a lot of people. And of course, we've been in and out of there for different things, Halloween and different events and, and things like that. And we love partnering with with what you guys are doing there. And it's good to be in a space where different people with different roles and different stewardships have responsibility for for, for curating the life and health and well-being of our community in the name of Christ. Because practically everybody, if you look at uh, a little bit deeper layers of who they are and where they're coming from, most of these people have Jesus somewhere in the background. And I think that's by design. We are called to be a life-giving people and create life-giving spaces. But the reason we have to do that is because there are other spaces that beckon people that over-promise and under-deliver and we get pulled away and into those spaces, and then they lead to our own undoing. And you may be saying, well, that seems pretty abstract. Well, as we get into our story here, I want us to look at life through the lens of our Heavenly Father. And as he sees from heaven what is happening, and as we see through the eyes of earthlings how life looks, Sometimes what is happening in heaven doesn't necessarily reflect what is happening here on earth, or rather vice versa. So in Luke chapter 15, we see something that Jesus does that's very provocative, but it's also very telling. And in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2, we, read these, we see this scene where he's on a journey to Jerusalem, if you remember, and... Luke writes, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That is, what's, what's he saying now? What does this fellow Jesus have to say about the things of God? What does he have to say that is so different from the things that we've been hearing all along? What new, is, what new things is he going to bring? And they're hungry. They are looking at Jesus and saying, maybe... There's hope for me after all. Maybe there's hope that what Jesus is offering is a fresh way of connecting with God. And they were, they were trusting that he possibly was the way that 
they've been longing for, that thing, that itch that they were trying to scratch was now finally going to be addressed. You see their title, tax collectors, sinners. We're not talking IRS here. We're talking about people who are working for a tax farmer who is actually contracted to the Roman government to extract money from the people who live in the, the Judean and the Galilean countryside. These are people who've said, we're shut out on so many ends, and socially, we have been put to the bottom rung. At best, you know, we can make some money and we can enjoy life a little bit, but uh, it definitely doesn't answer all the questions or check all the boxes. And then there's just the sinners, the people that the Scripture describe as living in a state of mind that is disconnected from the state of mind of God. These are the people that are unclean, unholy, who don't always honor the rituals, who don't always follow the rules, mainly because they're either shut out or they don't buy in. They're sort of disenfranchised from the whole religious establishment. But Jesus, something about Jesus is appealing. And then there are the Pharisees the people of the word, the guys who are responsible for making sure that everything is aligned and correct and perfectly calibrated with the things of God by their definition. And when Jesus came onto the landscape, he saw that they had a standard and they had a measure and they had a set of, 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 of thresholds that you had to meet in order to connect with God. And he's looking at this and he's saying, it might all be well and good, but in reality, it's actually shutting people down in their faith and their trust and their connection with the Father. And he has to upend a lot of this stuff. And as we talked about during Easter, that cost him ultimately his life. But before we get to that space, he is still provoking them to see what he hopes they need to see and he's provoking us to see what he hopes we need to see. Because it isn't just a story for people in Jesus' time. It's a story for you and I. Because like the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that grumble, like they did in the, in the wilderness generation, God, I know you delivered us. God, I know you saved us. God, I know you gave us this. We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like that. And it is that lack of gratitude that Jesus is also calling out. And as they were looking at Jesus, the man in the wilderness, the living water, the bread of life, they were grumbling. We don't like the form that the bread of life is coming into the world. We don't agree with it. There are a lot of things that they just did not like about Jesus. And they're calling him out. And they say, this man, this man Jesus, receives sinners. And if you've been following along, they eat at his table. They eat at his table, which means that he's socially networking with them. It means that his place of influence and his place of how he does his own business is corrupted by these sketchy characters. 
I mean, this was a huge offense. Now, if you have somebody come and eat at your table, you're not really thinking about all that stuff. But in that day, whoever was at your table was a representative of the kind of people that you hung out with, that you did business with, that you accepted their values. I mean, you really had to be in sync. So there's a lot happening of great significance in just those two verses. And as that's occurring, I I think we have to call our attention to the fact that Luke is trying to create in the minds of the people that he's writing to a sense of posture for how we look at other people. And really, there's two options here as this unfolds. We can look down at people, and we can say, we're better than them, we're smarter than them, we're richer than them, we're greater capacity than them, we're higher functioning than them, we are in a better class than them. All these categories that Jesus has come to disrupt, deconstruct, and put us at a place where we are all looking at one another and loving one another and serving one another, regardless of our capacity, our wealth, brain power, whatever, all of that is supposed to work together, not against. And then there's the option B. We can look for people. And that's a totally different posture. That means that no matter who they are, where they come from, where they've been, what they've done, places that they've visited, whatever the case may be, God is saying, I'm looking for you. I am looking for you. And God has this agenda, and he's not, and and he never gives it up. And that is the deep desire to reconnect with all of creation, especially you and I. So as the story unfolds, this is what Jesus says. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, uh, rejoice, rejoice, wait a minute, uh, make sure we got the right one. Yeah. Um, figure out what I did here. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, I, I, I dropped verse 5 and 4 and 3. <laughs> Do you guys still accept me as your friend? Good. Okay. You know, sometimes you try to jam 40 pounds of activity into a 20-pound sack, and my face is really red right now. Somebody read those verses for me because I can't see those words. I need giant print. Read, read 3, 4, and 5. Thank you, my friend. Hope you guys caught that. 
guy has 100 sheep, one of them wanders off, and uh, he says, got to find that one. And people are saying, hey, you know what? It's farming. You win some, you lose some. Let him go. You're going to jeopardize the other 99 by going out and looking for that one? Are you crazy? And Jesus is telling this, and these are agrarian people, and they're looking at him saying, well, that's just stupid. Why would he do that? Uh, it's not worth it. One guy gets saved. The other 99 get devoured by wolves while you're out looking around for them. Don't do that. So Jesus is telling him something, and he's saying, not only that, but when he finds it, he throws a party. Well, they're probably thinking this shepherd has been drinking too much. That, first of all, you shouldn't do that. And then secondly, who throws a party over a lost sheep? I mean, you're just doing your job. And Jesus is saying, but he's, he's, he's uh, throwing a party. But then he makes an analogy between one sinner who repents and 99 righteous persons who don't need any repentance. And as Jesus is going somewhere, he's just bringing them to what I think is going to be the premier story in this parable. So let's continue to unfold this with verse 8. I think we're on track now, guys. And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together all of her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Again, a little bit of a ridiculous story, but it could have been something like her wedding dowry. Who knows? It could have been something that had special significance as a coin. And as she's discovering where it's been misplaced, she's looking at the neighborhood and he's saying, come on down. We're going to have a party. Now, Jesus is telling this and the Pharisees, I know, are scratching their heads saying, where's he going with this? You got a guy Loses sheep, not too smart. That's why he's a shepherd. I mean, that would be the attitude, condescending. Or you got a woman who gets all excited about a coin. We got all kinds of coins where we come from. I, we don't throw parties for it. Unless, you know, we win the lottery or something. But otherwise, no, no parties here. But yet there is a party happening in the background, in the unseen realm, that Apparently, people aren't paying attention to, and they're not getting too excited about it. And it is actually a party in heaven that is getting ready to be described uh, in, the, in the next few verses. But before we get there, here's my question. When the 99% are saved and in their place where they need to be, you could say that's good enough. We'll round it up to 100%. But for God, it's like everyone, everyone has a place designated for them at my table. But not everybody wants to show up at God's table because not everybody has connected the dots that the place to find life is the place where the, the original life giver resides. And that is the place 
where God reigns from, his throne and his kingdom. And 99%, according to this story, because it's, an, it's a vast exaggeration, could very well have said, hey, we're all here. But every time they look at the table and they see that empty spot, but they say, but so-and-so isn't here. You ever go to a family gathering and that person doesn't show up and they don't sit in their regular seat? What's the first question out of your mouth? Where's so-and-so at? Why are they not here? You're very concerned. Then you're a little agitated. Maybe you're like, and I drove all the way here and they didn't even show? But let's be charitable and say, I drove all the way here, and I wanted to see them so badly, and I wanted them to be at this table to share this experience with us and know the joy of it. And for reasons that, unfortunately, I don't understand, I'm sad that they can't be here. I really wanted them to be there. And that's where Jesus is going with this. And that's why Jesus came into the world, is because God is not content to say, oh, there's enough. I know there's billions of people on the planet, but there isn't one person on this planet that is made in God's image that God says, I don't care about them. Not a one. Now, we all know that living on this planet is not always the best range of experiences, and we certainly don't showcase the best of our humanity to him. But there's something about him that says, that's not going to stop me. And I don't want them to remain living in that space where that they are feeling dehumanized, dead, disconnected, depressed, lonely, fearful. Even in some cases, just saying, why am I here? I should just end it. When God sees that, and he sees us in that space, his heart breaks. It really does. But, you know, we don't get to those spaces through the, just the influence of other people saying, hey, this is a route to go, or environments that cater to us in ways that are dramatic and showy. We get there also because we have a willfulness and a waywardness about us. We're, scripture says we were born in sin, which means that we're born in a state that says, I'm disconnected from God. I don't know the ways of God. And God is saying, but my son does. And as he shows us that, here's what Jesus says. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angel of God over one sinner who repents. So, in heaven, every time any one of us or somebody that we know repents, there's a party going on. There's a celebration. And I don't know about you, but I think we all love parties, don't we? Good things happen. People are happy. Reality is suspended. There's, there's just... People are just having fun. I remember a while back, um, some neighbors moved in, and uh, they had a pool. And they were about, about an eighth of a mile down the way. And you could just hear them carrying on and stuff. You know, I'm sitting out on the deck, you know, late at night, just enjoying the peace and quiet. 
And all of a sudden, you just hear these guys yelling and screaming and carrying on. And then they brought in a, a rock band. They were playing, they're playing rock music. And I'm like, this night's ruined. And then after that, there's fireworks. And I'm like, holy cow, I hope this isn't going to happen every night. You're thinking, you're just jealous because you weren't invited to the party. <laughs> Not saying. All I'm saying, it was annoying at the time. Why, why people? Why? It's calm neighborhoods. why we live in the country. Is there something wrong with that picture? Because I think that when we look at parties that are happening and we're annoyed by them, and we don't even know why they're happening, that may or may not be a good thing. And in this case, Jesus is saying, we have religious people over here who are shutting you down. We have a guy over here who's saying, I want to come to the Lord, comes to the Lord, and heaven is just bursting with their own version of music and their own choruses and their own celebration and revelry and fireworks. And you, however, are upset. I can't believe that. They're coming to the Lord. You know that person. You know the way they lived. You know the way they carried on. You know the things they've done. How can they do that? How can they come to church? They're bad. They shouldn't be in church. And Jesus is looking at that and he's saying, um, yeah, the whole world is pretty wicked, including yourself. And yeah, everybody should come to church. Everybody. Because it is the place where we find the source of our life. Jesus is beginning to showcase this. He tells a story. And he wants them to see just where God is at when it comes to people that shouldn't be in church. Our acceptance of them and the craziness of the whole thing as it unfolds because God's grace is just so generous. But this is really not a parable of the good uh, of the um, of the prodigal son. It's not really the parable of the older brother, and it's not really the parable of the father. It's actually all the above. Depends on how you want to look at it. So here we go. That was sort of like the warm up into the into the message because um, I want you to understand something. Based on what, where we've come so far, everyone knows what it's like to lose something deeply meaningful, that thing, or maybe that person, and maybe the heartbreak and the tears and the fact that you're like, I didn't know what I had until it was gone, including God, who clearly knew what he had and wasn't responsible for it being gone and longed for it to come back, but it wasn't an it, it was a a he or a she. When lost people return, Jesus is going here, we should have so much joy that we are ready to throw a party with all of our friends. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But the way to get there may be something you could or could not agree with. And so Jesus tells them in the third part of this, this parable, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me my share of the property. 
that is coming to me, you know, my inheritance. Even though you're still alive, I need it. Basically saying, the problem is you're still alive. You know what I mean? He's saying, drop dead. So I can have that. Give me my half. And what does the father do? He takes tillable farm ground, which is very productive, and he slices it in half, and he gives it to his son to no more gain the dividend from what that land will produce. He says, yours. Take it. So the son's like counting his money, and he's making his plans, and he's thinking about what he's going to do and all the possibilities, and he hears these voices beckoning him. Hey, if you come here, it'll be awesome. Hey, if you do this, you will not believe the experience. Hey, this is just like heaven on earth. And as the father is dividing the property and the son is selling it off, even as his father is just giving him the deed, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. Not... I, I, a lot of speculation about where he went, but I want to show you a map real quickly. And this is a map of the Holy Land, which you've probably seen before. And uh, to your, to, it'll be to your, uh, to your left is where a lot of the activities happen in the Scripture. Judea, Galilee up to the north, and Samaria in the middle. And then you got the Jordan River dividing it right down, right down the center. But off to um, what would be your right is a circle. And inside that circle are the ten cities. These are the 10 cities that um, started a few centuries before, but the Romans were basically saying, those cities, that's kind of like our Las Vegas. It's on the far end of the Roman Empire. It's, it's sunny. It's hot. It's, um, it's a place where you can go and um, be somebody other than yourself. The 10 cities basically encapsulate all the entertainment because there's lots of theaters, all of the possibility, all of the vice that you could ever imagine. It was a place where you would go on vacation. It was a place where there were travel bargains to get there. It was a place that had all kinds of shows and all kinds of talent. And all kinds of people gravitated to there because there was money to be had in Things like entertainment and athletics and games and stuff. It was just, hey, if I'm living on the other side and all I see is farm ground all day and all I'm told is to watch animals and till the ground and I have friends who've been over there and they said, you got to go. There's nothing like it. And that's kind of where I got the idea. And I thought, you know what? Forget this farming business. This is ridiculous. Who wants to die broken and not able to enjoy my, my life. So he heard kind of the siren call, and he, he sort of made his plan, and then pretty soon he had the audacity to say, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. Give me my money. See you later. And it really is a journey that I think 
fulfills every vice that you could ever imagine, everything that would compel you to do whatever it is you wanted to do, because you didn't have the restrictions of dishonoring your father. You didn't have all that Judaism. I mean, sure, there were Jewish people over here, but mostly, mostly the god Zeus. You guys know the god Zeus? He is the the god of gods. He is the god who oversees all the other gods. He is, he's got a pretty interesting story. And not, not always very nice. He's that god that if you want something, he's the go-to. You know, in Roman mythology and in the Greek mythology, Zeus was that character that all the vices that all the other gods had, he, he had a facet of that going on in his life. Well, at the same time, he was sort of above board, like, hey, we got to do things in order. we got to do things right. we got to keep things in their hierarchy. We've got to, we've got to do life-giving things. Does he sound like any other god that you've heard of? Want to be God? Well, Zeus actually is, he's, at, he's, on, he's in the pantheon, he's at the very center He's on Mount Olympus at the top, and he's venerated, and he loves that. For Christians in the day, Zeus was just a, another name of Wayne saying Satan, okay? Now, everywhere in the Decapolis, there are, little, there are little statues all over the place of Zeus, because what you worship is what you become. What you fixate on is the thing that begins to define you. What you trust is actually going to become your destiny. And if there was ever a God who overpromised and in the end underdelivered, it was that one. But he said, you know what? I've heard all that garbage. Boy did. The young man did. I'm not having it. Those are just sort of keep-you-away propaganda. So he goes there, and Jesus says, because people are listening, they know when he says going to a faraway land, he's probably going there by the tone of the story. And when he had spent everything, and I'm guessing his money and his friends ran out right at exactly the same time. And he a severe famine came and arose in that country, and he began to be in need. I, I was going to make an analogy between the water levels of Lake Mead and, and this, but I won't because they're good, godly people in Las Vegas, and so they need water. But things happen, and you wonder. So here's what he did. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into a field to feed Pigs, this is how we know it's on the other side of the Jordan River. Because, But you know, Jesus in the opening parts of his ministry in Matthew, where did he go? He went to the Decapolis. In Matthew 4, we read all about all the stuff that he did going there, trying to connect with them. And as he's doing that, he's in the back of his mind realizing that he's crossed the line like everybody else. He went over there. 
He's already jeopardized his ministry because of his association with those people. And as he's done that, well, he probably saw something like this happening. Be like an Amish guy going to Las Vegas or something that sort of stood out. Like, I know that guy. I know his dress. And so he's just hungry, feeding pigs, wanting to eat pig food. And no one gave him anything. So he's out there, head to toe, covered in pig manure, eating what the pigs aren't eating because nobody's given him anything. So what they had left, he was eating. And in that state, he starts to do a recalculation. And he came to himself. He just sort of had this speech. Here it is. Here it is. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And look at me. I'm languishing. I'm dying here eating pig food covered in pig manure. And, I'll, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to arise. And I'm going to go to my father. And I'll say to him, here's my speech. Um, father, I've sinned against heaven and uh, before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There it is. It'll take me back now. So he arose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, fathers looking over the horizon every day, wondering, when's it going to happen? When's he going to come to his senses? When is everything that I have baked into him going to cause him to rethink, oh, yeah, this isn't who I am. He just knew that day would come when everything else that screamed, hey, this is life-giving. Hey, this is good for you. Hey, this will carry you wherever you need to go, but never does. When will he realize that he had an original blessing that he couldn't even see anymore? couldn't appreciate anymore because he had no other frame of reference. He just always knew it. But he thought, that isn't good enough. And as he went back to the father, the father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran and in hog manure and everything, embraced him, hog manure on his face, and kissed him. Who does that? You could just see people saying, I think he's starting to lose it, actually. But I don't think he is. I think in this story, the son says to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called a son. But we get the distinct impression the father's not even paying attention. He's got one thing on his mind, and that is, my son left, and I wondered if I'd ever get him back. And I longed for the day that we could be together again. And my son came back. That's all that matters. He's not hearing a speech. 
He doesn't care that his son said drop dead. He doesn't care that the other farmers at the grain elevator drinking coffee said, you're an idiot. Why'd you do that? You knew what he's going to do. You lost half your stuff. We don't even know if we want to be associated with you anymore. Does the father say? That doesn't matter. What matters is my son was gone. He's not worried about all of that stuff. He's not unpacking that. What does he have on his mind? One thing. Party. So, he says, I'm just jumping ahead to 30. No, I'll ju- I'll, no, we'll follow the logic of it. It's just so good. Okay. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near to the, ho- the house, and he heard music, and he heard dancing, and he saw fireworks, and he called one of the servants, and he asked, what does this stuff mean? What is going on? And the guy said, your brother, he's back. And your father has killed not just any fatty calf, Bassy. Bassy. Because he has received him back safe and sound. Brothers, just fuming. He betrayed us. He stole from us. He jeopardized our livelihood. He's just ready to punch his brother out. You know he is. He was angry and he refused to go in. I'm not having anything to do with this. It's not my party. His father looks at him and he says, the last thing I want is to be under the same roof of three people who aren't getting along. Where we're not on the same page. So he's concerned about the brother. Because the brother could be the, the, the one of the, that's not the 99. And so he's trying to restore him back. And as he does that, he says to his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, not my brother, but when the son of yours came, devoured everything. I can't even utter the words of all the stuff that he's done. It's so shameful. And you killed Bessie? And the father has a little bit of a dilemma here. 
He's got one son who's got to go through behavior management situations. He's got another son who needs to go through anger management. There's a lot of work to be done here to get these people in the right place. But he's trying to put this in perspective for you and I. And he said to the, to the, to the brother, son, you've always been with me. You've always known the blessing that we've had together. Everything that I have, it's yours. By design, it's been for you the whole time. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He's lost, but now he's found. A lot of commentators have looked at this passage and said, this is an extravagant, extravagant view of God's grace. If there's ever any insight into the heart of God, if you ever had any doubt that God loved you or didn't love you for the things that you've done, if there's ever any question that you were never good enough, I think Jesus has put that to rest, both for you and for, for me. Because the vision is a couple of things. It is the restoration of your life and my life with him. And Jesus came to restore that. But it's also the reconciliation of us together because it is a horizontal and a vertical problem. And at the center of it is a bloodstained cross that says, I'm going to absorb all of that brokenness, all of that sin, all of that state of mind that says, my agenda is not God's agenda. I'm going to live the way I want to live. Or my agenda is I'm going to do it right by my definition of what is right and what is wrong. And I'm not going to agree with the Father because he's not being good with right and wrong. He's being gracious. But the Father says, I believe in living a good life. I believe in having order in life. You have that baked into your heart. But the problem is, you're both looking to other places to find those needs met. And there is only one place it could ever be met. And that is at the cross of Jesus. It is the only place, my friends, is why we can't deny him, because he is the only way. You see, this young man was not only caught up in his own waywardness and his own sinfulness, but the, Lord, but, but the other concern that this father had was the other God, Zeus, who said, I own your son. I own your son. He's mine, and I'm not giving him back. And on a bloodstained cross, an innocent man was put to death by him. Now he's as guilty as the rest of them. And because that innocent man died as a righteous man, in him and through him and by him, we can tell Zeus, we're done here. There's only one God, 
and that is Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. You see, this isn't just a story about how to get those guys to see they shouldn't be so judgmental. This is a story that says you shouldn't be partying when, in fact, you should be partying when heaven's partying. This is a story that says my creation was made for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to derive all of its life from me and live in connection to me forever. That's when things are put right. And any other standard is a lesser standard. So I'm going to end this message by saying, Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners. He came to reclaim the dominion of this planet from someone, some being that stole our birthright. And he came to restore it all in a future space called the new creation where we are now right with him and with each other forever. I like this world, but there's a lot about this world that needs help. And the place to begin is in political, economic, social. The place to begin is God's kingdom. And our job here is to transfer you out of whatever other place you're living into that space so that you could know not just life, but life everlasting. I hope that God has been working in your heart because we just reviewed the actions of a a woman, a shepherd, a father, and these are all just signposts laid out for you and I to see Jesus, to see his heart, and to know that there's no greater joy for heaven, for us as a church, than to see you testify to the heavens and to everyone on earth, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And if God's working in your heart right now to bring you to that place, that's where we're at. You can come and see me or one of the elders after worship, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that. But we don't want any space at the table to remain empty. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that what you have done, how you've said the things that you've said and showcased the life of the Father through a life of faithful living towards him and compassionate loving towards us and even stern rebuke to ways that we get it wrong when we think we have it right. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us, for calling us to be your people. And Lord Jesus, I just pray for anyone in the room right now that does not know you as a personal Savior, does not know you in a personal way, does not trust you in that way. I pray, Father, that you would continue, if you haven't already, begin to work in every life here so that we could come to the realization, we could come to our senses like the prodigal and recognize that our source of life and blessing can only come from you. 
Lord, work in our hearts as you've convicted us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you like to open your communion cups now? At the beginning of uh, the chapter, it says this, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's really good news. Because here's the better, better news. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled against him saying, this is their complaint, but for us, this is the best news on planet Earth. This man, Jesus Christ, receives sinners and eats with them. That's really bad news for them. That's really good news for everybody who is self-aware enough to know that indeed they are sinners. Um, sinners draw near to him. This man receives them. And there's three case studies after this showing that great reception. Because as sinners, we qualify. And I'm just going to look at the first one to take us to the cross. So he told this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one, to the Lord not one of us is expendable? In John 17, he says, I have not lost one. Those are very capable hands we read about. means he does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, even though this sheep sinned against the shepherd by abandoning him, he doesn't treat it like some of us might, or like I would. He doesn't discipline it. He doesn't give it a talking to. He lays it over his shoulder. He doesn't pull him along, put him doesn't hit him with his crook, doesn't put some rope around its neck and drag it, drag it back, lays it over his shoulders, and he does the carrying. That's one way God meets our rebellion. So I'm like that sheep, personally speaking. I get distracted by something, and then I look back, and he's 100 miles behind me. Or like the woman who essentially seeks and finds, or like the two sons that we saw. One rebels with sin, and the other one rebels with religion. And they all have the same need. And so, Father, I come to you absolutely grateful for the cross of Christ, where you make all of our, well, you, where you took the consequences of all of our running and all of our rebellion, you are the shepherd that lays us over your shoulder. You are the one who, when we seek, we find. You are the capable hands. You are the one who, when we come to our senses, are there to welcome us back. And all of these case studies, these three, with this sheep and this shepherd, this woman and her coin, these, son, these sons and their father, they are all met with rejoicing. So as we return to our God, confessing our sin and remembering the cross of Christ which paid for it and the Christ on the cross who is our God, may we taste that your love and rejoice in your welcoming back. And if for the first time we come to you, may, was, may we begin for the first time to taste of that rejoicing because that's 
You didn't save us for begrudging submission. You saved us for joy in you. You didn't save us just for our obedience to you, but for our joy in you. You are not some taskmaster alone. You are the God who invented joy. You know how life's supposed to work. You invented it. So bring us on to yourself. Help us to see Christ. Remove the scales from our eyes. And help us to look on you afresh in humility. Spirit, I pray that as we grant a moment of silence and prayer to take our communion and focus on the Christ of the cross, that you would do your work in this. And it's for your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Nice to see everyone on this beautiful sunny day and have God's grace and love shine down on us. But I would like to personally invite all of you next Sunday, the 22nd at 6 o'clock. You know, Leonard spoke this morning about something so important. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. The Lord calls us. We have two choices in life. To look down on people or to look for people. And I know the Lord has put on my heart and a lot of yours to look for people. Amen? So, maybe as Leonard spoke this morning about the upcoming event next week, and you had thoughts go through your mind of human trafficking, thoughts that we have all had. Maybe you have thought, well... Some of these women choose to have this, to choose this for themselves. Maybe some of you think that it doesn't really happen here. It only happens like what we saw on the map in that certain oval area. Or maybe you felt in your heart sadness and despair, an overwhelming feeling of we can't do anything. We all have those feelings. We all have those thoughts. But with God's grace and love and guidance and knowing that we are here to look for people, I personally want to invite you, come next week, listen, hear, see who God puts before you. You're going to hear from some dear friends of mine that have started this ministry called Ohio for Freedom. You're going to hear speakers that are involved every week and every day with human trafficking here in our community and in local area communities. You are going to hear from a group called Rahab Ministries who is trying to work their way into the human trafficking rescuing these women and families, putting them on the path to have everlasting life with our Lord. That's right, amen. So I encourage you and I personally invite you, come listen, and we're going to worship our Heavenly Father and we're going to hear from people that are going to help us be able to see 
and be more aware. Change begins with awareness. We don't know what it looks like. We might think we do, and it's easy to stand back and judge what it possibly is, but I invite you to please come, listen, and let's bring awareness to something that we can help to start here in our communities to start looking for people. Thank you. Well, we got one more song. If you got a class to get to or if you got to go help with the dinner, feel free to go. But we're going to praise God with one more song. to live for you. 
hold of by faith and you are the way the truth and the life and to latch hold on to this gospel message is to latch hold of you yourself with the good and better news being that you latch on to us and you never let us go as much as we try to jump out of your hand thank you it's for your wonderful name we pray Shremiah, the tea does start at 11, so I imagine you just hang around until then or whatever you want to do. And there won't be digging deeper after service today, so.